there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 73, A Revolution Dashed. Last week saw Chiang Kai-shek triumphantly lead NRA forces into Shanghai, and the remaining southern warlords opposed to the KMT were sent scurrying northwards to sink sanctuary with Zhang Zhuolin and the Fang Tian clique. But instead of pursuing his beaten opponents northward, Chiang would have to pause his campaign to secure the Kuomintang for himself. Inter-party relations hadn't improved after his victories, and the left KMT government in Wuhan were also exploring their options for reigning in Chiang and his military power. I have brought up in previous episodes the increased agitation of the general populace on the part of the left KMT and CPC once the southern half of China fell into their hands. And while the seizure of the foreign concession in Wuhan might have been a start, the forces of genuine revolution among the KMT and CPC were working to remake the nation in a wholly new image. Chang and the conservative officers around him, though, had other ideas. He arrived in Shanghai on March 26, 1927, and immediately set about getting it under his control. The balance of forces were on his side as he possessed the actual army, plus the networks of contacts among the city's business class that definitely supported him over the communists, and with them, much of the city's underworld. The left would marshal the labor unions, students, and whatever communists were available. As it turned out, that was almost enough, as these groups turned out huge crowds to support revolutionary action, once again being whipped into a frenzy based on their hatred of the foreign presence in Shanghai. Those crowds were big enough that if not for the NRA troops deployed to the streets to help keep order, they would have overwhelmed the defenses of the French district. Coming off the Nanjing incident I talked about at the end of last episode, though, Chang was increasingly on the hot seat when it came to foreign interests. The elements of the right KMT that now surrounded Chang impressed upon him the need to end the alliance with the communists and purge them from the Kuomintang. On April 1, 1927, Wang Jingwei arrived in Shanghai from his exile to try and hammer out some kind of arrangement with Chang and head off a civil war within the greater pre-existing civil war. Chang, for his part, warmly declared that he and all other NRA commanders would be at the service of their party chairman. This was partly due to Chang's commanders pressuring him to work with Wang. The commander saw him as far more useful as a friend than an enemy when it came to suppressing the communists. Wang spent some days trying to mediate the military, the left-wing Wuhan government, and the CPC. Chang wanted him to get rid of Broden for starters, while Wuhan representatives pleaded that Chang was too dangerous to leave in place. Wang ended up declaring in Shanghai that the party would not pursue a proletarian dictatorship, that implementing a democracy was the more important goal for now, in keeping with Sun Yat-sen's orthodoxy, which was party speak for everybody calm down and just stop provoking each other and just stay the, the ideological course that we've been on this entire time. Not trying to cave totally to the right wing, he also defended the CPC and dismissed the accusations that they were looking to supplant the greater party. This appeal to unity didn't work out, and the military leadership in Shanghai pressed Chiang again to purge the communists. Chiang Kai-shek, for his part, wasn't waiting around in Shanghai. He moved his center of power over to Nanjing and set up an alliance with the criminal syndicates of the Yangtze. They were in pretty open competition with the communists for control of the workers' associations and were eager to get rid of them. Chiang first ordered the disarmament of the workers' groups and on April 9th declared martial law in Shanghai. Starting on the same day, armed gangs in Nanjing and Shanghai started forcibly detaining leadership among the communist-aligned workers' groups and smashing up their offices and meeting halls. Only a few days before, on April 6th, 
Zheng Zhoulin had seized the Soviet embassy over in Beijing, arresting both the Soviet and CPC members there, and exposing a long paper trail documenting how the CPC was under the control of Moscow and acting to hijack the Kuomintang. Which, obviously, was not the best PR, and didn't do anything to allay Cheng's concerns. On April 11th, a leading labor leader and member of the CPC was invited by one of Cheng's underworld allies to dinner, the two being mutual friends. After having a lovely time together, the labor leader was murdered as he was leaving, and his body flung into a river. He had declined his friend's offer to quit the CPC and formally ally with the KMT. This started what would come to be known as the April 12th Incident, as communists and those closely aligned with the communists were hunted down in the streets and arrested. The workers tried to start up a strike, but Chang's agents had been preparing for this moment for some weeks already. Over the course of several days, the entire leadership of the leftists were decapitated. Chang successfully filled the leadership positions with his more moderate officials. And by the 15th, the real violence could get going. All over Kuomintang, China, wherever the right wing could get their hands on communists, they were arrested in a massive premeditated action. Eventually, some 15,000 were executed, and the alliance with the CPC was definitively concluded. Now, Chang went still further when he ordered that his supporters, now in control almost overnight of all but three provinces of the nationalist holdings, declared an end to the Wuhan government's authority. Seeing as how he probably wasn't going to be making a whole lot of progress in Shanghai from that point, Wang quietly boarded a riverboat on April 15th and skipped town to head over to Wuhan. His slipping away without notice was an indication to Chang that the Wuhan faction wasn't just going to submit to his authority. And for Wang, the matter boiled down to who was going to lead the KMT going into the future. He was the party chairman, the public leader. But if he allowed Chang to get away with the purges, he would effectively cede control of the whole movement over to the military. Wang and the others in Wuhan might not have had an immediate plan, but giving in to Chang without a fight just wasn't in the cards for them. On April 17th, Chang declared he was forming a new central government in Nanjing, one that would be a copy of and a replacement for the group in Wuhan. They did the usual ad hoc emergency government deal by declaring the communists to be dreaded enemies, publishing an arrest list, reaching out to the provincial leaders to let them know to start listening to them instead of Wuhan, uh, just the usual seizing power stuff. It was pretty depressing, as it was obvious from the start that this was going to be Chang's show, and the momentum towards a China governed by civilian authority took a major hit. And the sudden purges really couldn't have come at a worse time for the Wuhan government. The rapid push towards restructuring society along socialist lines had caused some severe economic disruption that had not yet been ironed out, given that it had just started. Keep in mind that even the early conquests like the Hunan and Hubei provinces had only been liberated from the warlords for less than a year. While the workers and peasants had taken the opportunity to rise up during this time to gain better conditions, a resolution had not yet been secured. Moreover, the transportation network was in total disarray due to all the fighting, which had a huge impact on a central region that formed the natural crossroads for all parts of China. And now, suddenly, the bulk of the army had broken away from them. The Wuhan government looked hopefully to the north and Fang Yuzheng's Guamanjun army for assistance. But that army was distant and was still entangled with Zhang and the Feng Tian clique. Starting on April 20th, the Wuhan government started proactively pushing stringent measures to bring every resource at their disposal to bear. 
They still controlled the Hunan, Hubei, and Zhangji provinces, and had by and large supported the strikes of the workers in the cities and the land seizures out in the countryside. Now the proletariat was expected to put their new gains to work in saving the state that had shielded them from its conservative half. But from the perspective of the farmers and workers, their march towards promised freedom was only half over. Their foremost concern was in settling scores with the many landholders and business owners still operating. This militancy could not be stemmed by government action in Wuhan and took on a life of its own, with the peasants preferring to complete their promised revolution to the local level under their own power. This kind of unnerved even the CPC, as they definitely wanted a revolution among China's peasantry, but they kind of realized that there had never been a revolution like this one before. And while they had made big inroads with the peasants, the CPC's idea of revolution still rested on urban workers. A revolution from the rural areas wasn't something the party's leadership was experienced enough to take advantage of. So they had no idea what it was supposed to look like, or how it would evolve, or if the CPC could harness it properly. Or if it might run away from the party and completely blow up in their faces. But going back to the KMT split, the crazy thing at that time was that neither wing of the party turned to face each other. Each faction had parts of the NRA that took their side, and either could have opened hostilities at any time. But... Both of them just decided to turn north and, I guess, just try and ignore each other. They certainly didn't trust each other, and there was doubtless going to be a confrontation sometime. But for now, they both decided to just keep marching and really just avoid each other. Chang resumed his advance and started pursuing what was left of Sun Chuan Fang's troops in Anhui and Zhangzhou. The soldiers who found themselves answering to Wang moved to finish off Wu Peifu in the Henan province. Fang and the Guamanjun linked up with Wang's forces in Zhengzhou by the 1st of June and continued north. On the 3rd, Cheng's troops had reached northern Shandong province. Now the only major independent warlord left on the board was Zhang and his Feng Tian clique, as both Wu and Sun were now under his umbrella. It now appeared to be the time to finally make the final advance on Beijing. Zhang's troops had been ineffective at bailing out Wu and Sun, but those were battles fought in areas far distant from the Feng Tian's core territories. Now the KMT was coming to face him on what had become his home turf. For the Wuhan forces, this was going to be the site of their Fyrick victory. They successfully pushed northward, but did so in the face of the strongest opposition from the Feng Tian troops. 15,000 of the best NRA troops at Wuhan's disposal became casualties. To add insult to injury, Fang Yuzhang and the Guamanjun opted to skip ahead and largely bypass the fighting, leaving the uh, Wuhan forces to take the brunt of it. This was coupled with a rapidly deteriorating situation back down south. While the main armies were fighting in the north during this time, the month of May was one of intense crisis for the Wuhan government back home. Zhang actually wound up not sending his main force back westwards towards Wuhan, because he simply did not have to. The various local commanders left behind in the provinces, still warlords and fierce anti-communists at heart, took their garrisons and proceeded to invade Wuhan's territory. In addition, garrison troops under the nominal control of the Wuhan government started turning against them. One such flip-flopping garrison attempted to make a play on Wuhan itself on May 19th, but a hasty defense organized by the communists routed this attempt. Keep in mind, the troops fighting this battle were not the best. The crack NRA troops were all in the north, so this, these were all the second, third, and maybe even fourth-rate troops. This attempt on Wuhan caused a spiral of violence across the greater region. 
In Changsha, the rabidly pro-communist population whipped themselves into such a frenzy that the local garrison commander resorted to dissolving the local government and ordering mass arrests and several executions. The troops that were turned away from the gates of Wuhan took vengeance against the peasants by burning the countryside. Troops from Sichuan crossed over the provincial borders and invaded from the west. All in all, things were looking terrible for the left KMT. And they would only get worse on the 31st of May, when a force sent to relieve the people of Changsha was thrashed to pieces by intercepting Chang'allied troops. Now the Wuhan leadership went into hysterics, with the communists calling for tens of thousands of farmers to be organized into a new army to crush the counter-revolution. More realistically, they were pretty much screwed. Their best troops were dying up north, and the garrisons left behind all over the south were going over to Chang. Joseph Stalin sent a memo to the Soviet advisors in Wuhan and ordered that if the situation worsened, that a revolution from below would have to commence and any KMT official standing in the way were to be deposed and replaced with representatives from the proletariat. There would be land seizures on an even greater scale than before, and a separate communist army would be established, which was all some fine armchair revolutioning. The moment had finally come when Stalin had lost all patience with the KMT. Chang was a lost cause, and the left wing was teetering on the edge of disaster. Being a partner to the losing side of the party was no good. It was now time to seize control of the entirety of the National Revolution. The problem with all that, though, was that the orders were completely impossible to actually carry out. Everything was in chaos, and the CPC was fast losing whatever light grip it had on the worker movements. Communication had broken down, and even basic coordination between cities and provinces was impossible. In several instances, when trying to gather information from other major cities, the CPC had to dispatch agents from Wuhan to physically travel there and back to provide a report of just what was going on in the outside world. Clearly, creating an army from scratch and going against the NRA was out of the question. The orders were so far out there that it actually sent the communist leadership into a fit of despair, which might explain what happened next. Now, this message from Stalin was undoubtedly meant to be a secret memo that was to be shared among the Soviets and the highest and most trusted members of the CPC leadership. But one of the Soviet advisors inexplicably gave a copy of it to Wang, the head of the KMT Wang, the guy who Stalin was saying to either remove or impose their control over. Wang wasn't happy and knew he was in danger, but the real embarrassing thing was that his position at this point was dependent on CPC support, so he couldn't even make a break with them, even when he had a copy of clear orders encouraging the destruction of his own party. A small break did come on June 15th when Fang formally agreed to join with the KMT and become part of its power structure and offered his allegiance to Wang. This would allow the left KMT troops deployed north the opportunity to withdraw south and try and restore order back home. But remember how I talked in earlier episodes how Fang was kind of an idealist? That he was actually fighting in favor of Sun Yat-sen's ideals? Well, that only lasted a couple of days. Chang made a counteroffer to Fang, offering a much more generous subsidy than Wang and the left KMT could possibly offer. Which, as you might recall from episodes past... Feng's chronic lack of money to fund his army was his greatest nemesis. Feng turned around and on the 21st, less than a week after striking up an alliance with Wang, delivered a list of demands. Baroden was to leave the country, which that demand was probably all Chang. The government was to adjourn from Wuhan and make their way to Nanjing, and anybody not liking these demands was free to leave the country. 
This was a bad but non-fatal deal for the left wing of the KMT. They were largely being forgiven and just had to swallow their pride and accept Cheng as their leader, and also play down their more socialist leanings for the time being. But for the communists, the threat was existential. While Feng's demands didn't address them per se, they were clearly going to get purged. The left KMT was largely exhausted with few troops left by this point, so they weren't going to decline a way out. For the communists, now was the time for an escape plan. Most of the Soviet advisors started making their way back to the USSR. Much of the CPC started making arrangements to go underground and continue the struggle from there. In mid-July, Wang formally ordered that the KMT was to go along solely with Sun Yat-sen's original vision, which signaled the triumph of the right KMT. However, there was still a spark of life in the CPC. They no longer had a home and could not be a visible force in public life, but much of their leadership was able to escape capture, and there were legions of sympathizers within the KMT's ranks. They had built relationships not just in the KMT as a party, but in the military formations and among the people themselves, and these bonds that were forged over years would not so easily be forgotten. As we all know, with the clear benefit of hindsight, they would rebuild it as something much greater. But they didn't have the benefit of hindsight like we do to know that not only was their survival going to happen, but it would lead to the greatest of triumphs down the road. For now, this was actually a time of great panic for the communists. Barodin left China via a train headed for Mongolia. He actually got a fair amount of fanfare from the nationalists on his way out, as while his enemies were glad to see him go, even they respected all he had managed to accomplish in China. Blucher and the other Soviet military advisors were still hanging around out in the Zhangji province and were now suddenly a lot more isolated. Most of the communist military strength that was still coherent uh, started filing into the Zhangji province, hoping to spur a mass revolt down in the south. Keep in mind, the situation had become very fluid at this point. The provinces that the left KMT had held were basically in chaos, and while Cheng was in control of the NRA, most of his forces were off to the north fighting Zhang. Officers who remained behind and had pledged themselves to the KMT had reverted to some of their old warlordish ways now that there was no clear central authority in the vicinity. Now, don't panic, we aren't going back to the bad old days of fragmentation, but factualism in one form or another is never going away from China in this era. Anyway, while Cheng was still off in Nanjing in the front lines trying to solidify his hold on the nationalist regime, the CPC was trying to regroup in south-central China. And let me tell you, they were angry. Things were really going well for them up to that very moment. They had been organizing peasants and workers in droves, and they were becoming the public face of the revolutionary movement. Most of the KMT leadership had abstained from engaging with the peasantry, again, because they looked down on them and the work they did. Especially in the countryside, the CPC had become the link between the masses and the KMT. In retrospect, the nationalists should have had a contingency plan on how to carry on with public engagement when they did their preemptive purge on their populist allies. Now, the CPC began the long work of turning the masses against the Kuomintang. And it was now that the winding, frustrating march towards destiny was going to start in earnest for the CPC. From this point going forward, they were mostly going it alone, barring deals with local authorities or empty truces with Cheng that nobody was falling for. The 1st of August, 1927, is considered a red-letter day, and yes, that pun is very much intended. It was on that day that the Chinese Red Army was founded, and an uprising centered on the city of Nanchang, taken after three attempts just a year previously by the KMT, was launched in earnest. 
The city was taken easily by communist troops, with some advising from the dislocated General Blucher and his team of Soviet officers. Local army units sympathetic to their version of the revolution joined in, or in other cases were drawn in via simple opportunism. That's great, great. Everything is going great, right? Well, no, not really. Chiang certainly wasn't going to be getting everything his way, but this was the communists' first solo operation as a military force. Good military discipline was always hard to come by, and the troops defecting to the communists in no way had it. The idea after seizing Nanchang was to march south and seize Guangzhou while Chiang wasn't looking, but that was easier said than done. I've mentioned in the past that the geography and climate of southern China is rough as hell, with ample mountains and hills covered in lush vegetation, making for an impossibly broken landscape. The weather was usually tropical, and when it wasn't was only a couple degrees lower than that. Infrastructure was as poor as ever. So predictably, this ad hoc army marching south promptly started falling apart. There were desertions, some defected back over to the nationalists, and those who fought had to contend with local military forces on their home turf with no supplies. By the end of September, the last remnants of this expedition had given up or faded into the countryside to regroup and buy their time. It was pretty bad, even for a first outing. The Nanchang fiasco provided ammunition that maybe a straight-up military confrontation wasn't the best idea. There was a simultaneous plan B, though, that the CPC was hoping to unleash further to the west in the Hunan and Hubei provinces. And that was a good old-fashioned peasant revolt. This was such a central idea to, to the operation that the CPC actually disallowed trying to sway local military forces over to their side in the initial stages of the revolt. The victory would have to come from the efforts of the farmers raising themselves up. Unfortunately, masses of unarmed farmers might not be the best fighting force in the early 20th century. The autumn harvest uprising began at Hubei on September 8th and went nowhere. Farmers, with their own working equipment as their weapons, didn't pose much threat, and thankfully their communist leadership didn't want to throw their lives away. This meant that when they reached a town with any sort of garrison willing to stand up to them, they simply had to back off. They tried to link up with a group of local bandits that might have had a few rifles to spare, but the bandits took one look at the group, disarmed them, and sent them back home. The whole thing took a week to fall apart. Down south in Hunan, things went a smidge better, but not by much. This operation was led by the eventually famous Mao Zedong, and was set to take the city of Changsha. And yes, we're just playing the Northern Expedition's greatest hits in reverse by now. Riots and other disorders were scheduled ahead of the communist advance to try and force the local garrisons to pull back into the cities instead of allowing them to engage the communists in the fields. This allowed Mao's troops to make an initial advance that managed to panic the provincial authorities into thinking that a broad revolution might actually be afoot. But Mao's first foray into military matters fell apart. Two formations of soldiers had a dispute that grew heated, and they started attacking each other. What got that little bit of insanity going, I have no idea, but it royally screwed the whole operation. Nationalist-aligned troops swooped in and scattered the remaining communist soldiers that hadn't joined in the fracas. Mao himself barely escaped with his life and almost coincidentally found his way to a village where the tattered remnants of his troops were regrouping already. Mao turned on the old demagogue charm and managed to convince the peasant soldiers to keep following him. Abandoning the attack, he led his men to a mountain fortress he would ride out the following tribulations of failure. And, oh boy, were there repercussions to the botched uprisings. For one, this gave Chang the perfect boogeyman to keep the southern warlords, who he had co-opted into the KMT, in line. 
they certainly weren't going to raise the flag of rebellion when there was potential for a communist uprising right around the corner. As for the CPC itself, well, it was kind of shattered. There definitely were still sympathetic figures in the KMT and NRA that would probably have preferred the communists to Chiang's increasingly authoritarian ways, but the disasters suffered in August and September kind of killed any momentum towards any mutiny. Moreover, it created local panics that allowed the right elements of the KMT to purge communists, and really anybody that could be associated with communists with even more gusto than they had before. While this created disruption to the nationalist movement as people who had previously worked with the KMT were taken out, it also provided a window to make the party more ideologically homogenous as they could now point to the communist movement and reject the siren call to class warfare and the upending of established society. Maybe not terribly idealistic, but it would help craft a more coherent identity and also settle the inter-party debates once and for all. That also meant that the factions of the KMT started getting back on the same page. This was necessary, as the Northern Warlords had started pushing back against the split and overstrained nationalists. Chiang had been forced to shuffle some troops back to the southwest to restore order in the aftermath of the Wuhan government's collapse and the communist uprisings. By this time, too, a lot of the other military leaders in the KMT camp were actually getting kind of sick of Chiang. I'm going to cover this in more detail in the profile episode, but Chiang was kind of a dick to a lot of his subordinates. Now, this was more stern perfectionist who expected the best kind of dick than pompous asshole kind of dick, but to men who had been independent warlords who had voluntarily come over to the side of the KMT, it was a bit much to bear. Chang was certainly still beloved by the rank and file, but over the course of a year of military campaigns and political intrigue, relations at the top among the conservatives had grown frayed. The left KMT had purged itself of communists and formally denounced the more extreme socialist positions they had formally advocated, which was really what most of the conservatives had wanted all along. Now there wasn't a real need for inter-party conflict, and Chang served less of a purpose to the conservatives. Now, you might rightfully point out that Chiang's primary purpose was winning battles, but after conquering most of the country, that had actually kind of turned into a liability as well. Nobody likes a guy who wins too much too fast, after all. Chiang kind of saw this coming and pulled a classic political power move and offered to resign, probably thinking they'd ask him to stay on with no replacement on deck. Now, it was true there really wasn't anyone who could replace him, at least militarily. Wang Jingwei was still the most prominent politician, but with the Northern Warlords back on the move and pressing their advantage for once, the Nationalists needed solid military leadership. It should be a sign to how far Chang had alienated everyone by being such a control freak that nobody argued with his resignation. On August 12th, he cleaned out his desk in Nanjing and awkwardly shuffled off for Shanghai, and from there, a little way south back to his provincial hometown. Now the KMT faced the prospect of having to finish out the war without their only successful commander-in-chief. But don't worry, this retirement was mostly a ploy for Chiang to lay low and solidify some alliances for when he made his comeback, which I will get into in the future, as next week I'm going to be following up with the communists. Although, when I say that, I really mean mostly Mao and how they emerged from their greatest catastrophe. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.